War Kids there, Miracle Mile. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Three great guests on today's show, Doug Lucas, Sam Elkin and Kay Anderson joins us from London. But we do have legendary Melbourne entertainer Doug Lucas on the line. Doug, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Doug, where do we start with you? First of all, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, where do you start? It's a big story. <laughs> Look, it really is. Let's go back to 1975 when you established Melbourne's first gay disco. What was the backstory to that happening? Well, I'll just give you a quick history before that. Jan used to run a, a couple of gay bars back in the early days. This is Jan Hill, who was my partner from Pokies. She wanted an overflow bar because Menchie's Tavern was, um, was getting too full. And I said, look, I'd, I'd run it so long as it was guys only bar because I'd, everything was a bit more um, sheltered, secluded in those days. She didn't want people from work turning up for a drink and getting sprung. So um, I got the DJ that used to work at the, um, the Dover originally. Like The bars had background music, but they were never dance bars. And it sort of started a little bit there, but then... A friend said to me, look, John Barry's got this hotel in Carlton, in North Carlton, and he's um, wondering whether you could sort of make something of it, you know, get the crowd there. And and I said, all right. Um, so that was my thing. Disco was just starting out. I, I love black music, you know, Tamla Motown and all that stuff, which was just really starting to become quite big. Um, and... Um, I thought, well, I'll do this. I'll do it guys only. The dance floor used to be packed. Um, my lighting system at that stage was like six power flood lights that were attached to a, a three-channel mixer. Like I said, it was guys only. Back in those days, you'd have the Leather Queens arriving with, with like a, a sports bag and they'd go down the back to the toilets and get changed into their leather. This is back in the days of the tambourines and the whistles and doing dances like the bump and the hustle and um it was it was just a great place to go. You didn't have to worry about, like I said, being sprung. There was nothing to attract straight people. It was in a quiet street. The um old police station was opposite but there was actually a breathalyzer used as a breathalyzer headquarter and um they had no qualms about us working there and the police generally were pretty good, you know, I mean there were hyperphonic ones around but they actually preferred that we had a place that we could mingle instead of them going out, you know, um, doing reports about people being bashed up in straight pubs or outside pubs or whatever. So, and also in those days, it was a certain safety in numbers mentality. But um, I just tried to offer people what I'd like to go to myself. And I ran that for about four years until we started Pokies. It must have had a great community feel and the community must have been so relieved to have that safe space. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, look, there were previous gay bars earlier. I mean, the Prince of Wales always had a gay bar. The Woolshed Bar at the Australia Hotel had one that was down down below street level. But, I mean, they always had a lot of crims hanging there too in those days, gays, and crims used to sort of be virtually herded into the one place. Um and when I first came onto the scene in um, late 1970, the Sapphire Arms was really rocking. That was a pub that used to be on the corner of Chapel and Turak Road. And that was bumping because Maisie's Hotel, which was a majesty, was up further, was um, being renovated. But, I mean, basically it was a place people used to go to coffee lounges in those days or have parties in their private homes. So, um, yeah, it was good. It was great. I, mean, I got to meet so many people. And I think that's when that community 
sort of sense. We weren't like people just on the outside looking in, although in those days you did live two lives. You lived one when you were out with your friends where you could scream and hoot and holler and, you know, be at camp if you wanted to be, and then at work you'd have to um, play the straight role. <laughs> you <laughs> so mentioned... That's how it was in those days. I mean, you know, not like today. You couldn't walk down the street holding hands or show any public affection. Um and like I said, it was a bit like an underground movement, you know. Absolutely. And it was kind of an exciting time, but a dangerous time to be gay. I mean, the word queer didn't really exist in terms of our community, did it? No. Well, I pitied the ones who went through the 40s, the 50s and the, the early 60s. I think they had a much harder time, I think, in the late 60s. There was that sexual revolution that hit Australia and people were sort of coming out a bit more. People were knowing more about gay people. There wasn't maybe so much ignorance attached, but there was still a lot of homophobia out there. I mean, people thought they could have a right to come up and just punch you in the face if they thought you were gay. You know, I mean, something that I've never ever understood was that why straight people were so sort of hung up on gay people or what gay people do in their bedrooms. You know, it's just, I think it's amazing. We're all the same. I mean, we think the same. We breathe the same air. We, it's just that we have... Um, partners of our own sex, but I mean, that's our business. I don't know what it's got to do with anybody else, but, but I mean, I've always believed in that. You know, I've never felt that I'm pursuing anything wrong. I suppose I was proud and gay without sort of realising that, you know, I just thought I'm a nice person. I don't need this shit. I'm not going to let people put me down. I, I believe I'm doing the right thing, and I was quite prepared to stand my ground and go, well, this is who I am and this is what I do. You know, I could hardly be making a living out of the, the gay scene and being ashamed of it. The, um, Went on TV once they did a thing in the, um, what was the Australian, Financial Review. Somebody was thinking of setting up a gay gravel, um, sorry, a gay travel group. And they did interviews for us on current affairs and whatever else. And that was a bit of an eye-opener to some people. But um, I certainly didn't have a problem standing up there and saying that we had just as much right to our own exclusive clubs as, say, like a Polish club or a Catholic club or a soccer club or a... That really wasn't any different, you know. It wasn't people thinking there was some big orgy going on. Did the community call itself a gay community in 1975 when you set up that oh, first... Oh, we were camp. You were camp, we were exactly. camp, yeah. So when did gay yeah, become yeah, a term? I'm not quite sure where that came from originally, but we weren't gay. Gay is a word that came in a bit later. I don't know if that came from America or... Oh, no, it was one of those words that was a bit ambiguous, but you go, oh, that's so camp, you know. And now, like, we can say that's so gay, but if you put that comment up on Facebook, they bloody do it as hate speech because a few of the yobs and the hedgehogs out there use it as a derogatory term. I mean, it's getting to the stage that our dialogue's being taken away from us. But, you know, I mean, we had magazines called Camp. You know, they, they were just, it was early days of everything. The whole scene was just blooming and, uh, this was not long after um, Stonewall. Uh, for those who don't know the history of Stonewall, that's just when the pages of these gay bars, in, uh, the gay bar in America, had got fed up. The, the police were being paid off by the mafia that used to run the bars, and it was just after Judy Garland had died, and she was quite a gay icon there. Um, the police were there doing another routine raid, and the drag queen's gone, look, you know, leave us alone, we're dealing with dealing with this, this emotional thing, we don't need this shit, and they took the police on, and that was basically the birth of the gay movement. Australia was a little bit different, but, I mean, a lot of Australians still had that attitude of live and let live, you know. They didn't 
sort of mind it so long as it wasn't compulsory. <laughs> I think it used to be the attitude back in the day that, um, I mean, obviously they've grown up a lot since then, but everything's a lot more open too. It's not so so guarded or shielded. You started the legendary Pokies in late 1977, once again a partnership with Jan Hillier. First of all, how did you meet Jan? I was going out with a guy that lived in the same block of flats as Jan. Um, he lived upstairs and, we went, and he was having a dinner party one night and I'd arrived, Jan, <laughs> this is so true, I'd never really met a butch lesbian in my entire life. I was pretty green, I was coming from Naval Park, even though I was living in Nelson, because um, this is all still a bit new to me. It was very new to me, actually. And um, Jan was there with her girlfriend, and I just thought that Jan was a bloke. And when she stood up and I saw that massive bust in it, I was just sort of completely overwhelmed. But but she was quite a character, Jan. I mean, in those days, she, um, she was starting to run dances. She'd, um, she was working for actually tip-top bakeries and one of those delivering bread, but she'd get up-tanked and she'd always had somebody in the car with her that would be racing and dropping the bread off. It was so <laughs> just fun days. But, I mean, those were the days of dinner parties and lots of private parties, and there was groups that used to organise, like car rallies, and there was functions going, but like I said, they were closed. Yeah, absolutely. It was kind and of like, you know... Parties, um, I, for a while, there was hosting this drag show at Annabelle's, which was was a gay club called Blaze, which is at Annabelle's Hotel in in the city. Not that it was virtually next door to the university club. It was it and um, but it was more like a talent quest show where I hosted it, and then um, I ran a venue at the Koala Motoring up on the top floor that I called Pokies, which was the name that I originally was going to have for a coffee lounge because coffee lounges were quite popular in those days because somewhere you could go late because it was 10 o'clock closing, you know, to drinks and whatever else, pubs, and you could sit and have a coffee and chat with your friends, have a toasted sandwich or whatever. And I was going to open that in Dundas Place in Albert Park. I never got off the ground, so I'd... Um, opportunity came up to get this other place, and I wanted a name, so I just grabbed that name because I'd, I'd had it registered anyway. And then Jan used to come along, and Jan had sort of been out of running venues for a few years, and she'd approached me and said, look, um, with the following you've got and the following I've got, why don't we combine forces and do something you know, on, a, on a much larger scale? And I thought, oh, yeah, why not? You know, so it virtually, from my point of view, it started off as, as a venue for the end of the week where you just go sit down, watch a little show. I think there was five of us originally when we started, you know, two, two drag performers, myself and two male dancers. And... Um, it was going to be a quiet night, but it obviously took on a life of its own and it just grew and grew and grew. But, I mean, that was with the support of the people out there. I mean, the first night we closed the doors when we'd reached 300 people and, and yet in a day a few years later, when we had a cast of 10, we were getting 1,000 people through the doors. It was amazing, wasn't it? So tell us about pokies and also pennies. They alternated one each week, yeah? No, 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 no. This is where the confusion comes. Pokies was every Sunday. What pennies was was a girls' bar that Penny and Jan ran together. The only connection with pokies was the fact that Jan was my partner in pokies and she was Penny's partner in Penny's bar. Um, 
and it was sort of like a brother and sister thing, but they were never under the one roof. But I mean, we used because it was all done at the Prince of Wales, we used to share the expenses of the hiring of the sound equipment and a couple of other things. But they were two separate venues. So tell us about Pokies. It was at the Prince of Wales and it went for a very long time. It went for decades. How long? Fourteen and a half years. Wow. Wow. And it actually had a big reunion night in 2002 at the Palace Nightclub. And I I did everything as a, in a concert format. They had the big screens either side of the stage and each of the girls had their own video history. And it was the most amazing night. I mean, here it is, it's 30 years this year since we've closed and people still talk about it. You know, there's, there's a lot of us out there still breathing. But remember, and it was a big part of, of our, you know, our 20s, our 30s and our 40s. Absolutely. Now, of course, you did so much uh, in the community for the community when HIV AIDS hit in the early 1980s and the community was organising around that. Tell us about the work you did, the fundraising and just oh. the community education that you did. I mean, it's an extraordinary history. Well, the compares and the shows in those days were always relaying the latest information we have. I mean, as a venue owner, Jan and I got to go to the original meetings when we realised that, that there was a problem out there and, and were around when they'd actually originally formed the VAC, which is the Victorian AIDS Council. Um, we were always informed as to what the latest treatments were or you know, whether they need funds to this or whether they needed people out in Fairfield or people that were living on their own that needed TVs or microwaves or something to make their life easier. We we would go to different businesses and ask them whether they could donate gifts. We had a big fundraiser at Pogies where we brought Ada Buttrose down from Sydney because at that stage she was the government representative or head of of their AIDS program. And um, But we made sure that the money that we raised actually went to rural country Victoria, you know, rather than everything being centred just in the capital cities. Um, but whatever benefit was that, we put our hand up for. I mean, you know, this is for our friends. And that time, I mean, Melbourne has always been a friendly city and it had been like the dinner party city, the private party. If you didn't know everyone that came back there when the pubs closed at 10, at least you knew who they came with. So, I mean... With everything that happened and people being in a similar situation, it actually made the bonding a lot closer. And this is what made Pokies so important too because they could come on a Sunday night, have great music, catch up with all their friends, bring their family along if they wanted to, sit down and see a really great show and just take some of that pressure off them but um, still be informed as to what was going on out there. So, But, I mean, you know, we also did benefits to help um, get... Um, Troy Melbourne off the air. You know, us performers have a saying amongst ourselves, you know, you expect to do a certain number of benefit shows, whether it was Tell Ball. So most of the fundraisers, I mean, we, we did all of that free of charge. Just it wasn't to promote our names. We didn't need, we didn't certainly didn't do it for publicity. We just did it because it was a way that we could help out. Absolutely. And you worked with so many incredible people and you did so many amazing shows. Is there any one show that you did that's particularly etched in your memory? Well, I had different ones I like for different reasons. I mean, Terry Tinsel and John used to come with some amazing shows. But my personal type of show is more like I like a piano better with a band. You know, I like a more uh, traditional 
a cross between a drag, what I would call a drag show and a stage show. Rather than, I mean, I mean we did a lot of theme shows. We did like Winter Wonder Drag. Julian had made the most amazing production costumes for us. Um, we did amazing shows like The Guardian, The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, it's just years and years, and the shows kept getting bigger and bigger. The technology got better. The videos got better. Instead of moving something, anything that was glitter, leaving black marks across the screen, you could get rid of. Um, and we had the crowd on site encouraging us every week. So, And it also opened up the opportunity for people like Laurie Lane to do the sets, Pete McBean to do the wigs, people like, like John Minogue who's coming and choreographed, Neville Burns, who was a brilliant dancer, Peter Curran, were choreographers of the show. So... So it involved a lot of other people. We also had a piano bar. If you didn't want to dance on the disco, you'd go in the piano bar and have a sing-along, whether it was Pat Murphy, whether it was John O'Hare, or whether it was Will Convoys playing. Um, and then we had a smaller bar that we called the Can Bar. So we had three areas, like a chill area, a more relaxed area, disco. We always had the most popular music. We had Central Station on site. They were always giving us the latest music that was coming out and they were always very generous whenever we were having a special night, a birthday night, an awards night. Um, they were always very generous with donations. And in those days, all the venue owners got on really well, you know. We'd go out and have lunch once a month and sit around and just discuss what was happening. And those were in the days when you'd go out to lunch at 12 and the last one had probably dragged themselves away from the table at about 4 in the afternoon. But... Um, yeah, they were pretty heady days, the 70s. And of course, in the 80s, everybody had money. You know, you were out five, six nights a week. And that's unfortunately, was when the AIDS epidemic hit. But, but instead of breaking us as a community, it actually strengthened the bonds. And that's working with amazing people. Well, I've been blessed, you know, and I've got to work because of my profile at Pokies. And, you know, I've got to work in Adelaide. I've got to work in Perth. I've got to work in Sydney. Canberra, Tasmania. I've also worked straight clubs, which is not what your show's about, but, you know, you used to compare lots of hens nights and male strip shows and, and host Mr. New Australia Quest every year. Um, so I've been oh, most, most uh, certainly most of Southern Australia. Um, it's been a very interesting life. Um, I don't know what else I can tell you. Well, I mean, you've got just an incredible career still, Doug. That's what I find fascinating about oh, you. your longevity. You're still going. Um, tell us about ago, DTs. COVID, 12 months before COVID hit, I was bemoaning the fact to a few of my friends, and they obviously felt the same way, that there was nowhere for people of a certain age group to go. It's not like we're brain dead, we're old, we're past it. We still like to catch up with our friends. We like to know what's going on, but the fantasy ball wasn't on anymore. The alternative ball wasn't on. Queen's birthday picnic wasn't on. A lot of these functions, you know, that you'd look forward to, you know, three or four really big events a year. And it got to the stage that most of us were catching up with one another at our friends' funerals. And I just, I'd gone to a wake for Tootsie at DT's. A friend of mine, very good friend of Tootsie's, was holding it there. And... He didn't know how to sort of MC or compete. He'd asked me if I'd host the afternoon. I said yes. And a couple of the older queens got up and did a couple of numbers as a tribute to Tootsie. And I thought, now this could tie with my idea because there's a need for this. I was looking around. I thought, these people 
would obviously appreciate a chance to have somewhere to meet. And on the other hand, it gives a chance that some of the performers who don't have that, that stage to get on to come out and perform. So I saw it as a win-win thing, and I just took off like wildfire. So last Sunday of every month, um, I host the show, not because I have to be the host, but that's, that's the, that is the draw. I mean, I'm realistic enough to do and That's what I have to do to get people there. I'm more than happy, but it's, but it's a very popular, friendly, relaxed afternoon. So... I'm, as I call it, I'm back in harness, but I'm very direct with the crowd. I told them exactly why I started it up, and they agreed with me 100%. So this is just another time I'd hit the button right on the head. Absolutely. Doug Lucas, it has been an absolute privilege to talk to you today on 3CR. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, if people want to catch you perform the last Sunday of every month at DT's in Richmond. Yes, yeah, starting next month we start back. Fantastic. Doug, all the best. Okay. Wonderful Thank to you, chat. James. I'm sorry. I hope it didn't take up too much of your time. No, no, no. It, I've been hanging off every word you said, Doug. Oh, I think the community the has been... I thought you had another two actions. It's an hour show, is it? It's an hour show, but I've um, oh. always got plenty of time sorry, for you, Doug. You are a legend. I'm 26, and I thought, they had to be very quick. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, Doug. Love your work. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, James. Thank you. Bye. The wonderful Doug Lucas there. You are an in-your-face on 3CR.
David Bowie there. You are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. Joined by writer, community events producer, activist, Sam Elkin. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Sam, it's always great to chat with you. Very exciting week coming up for Transgender Day Visibility next week. First of all, what will you be doing on the big day? Well, on the big day, uh, my work is organised a Trans Day Visibility event on Zoom from four to five um, with Creative Brimbank. So we're going to have a number of local storytellers um, sharing a bit about their their life and their journey. And, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to have Anastasia Lee, Tiff Tan and Vincent Silk. Fantastic. I mean, you were a community lawyer now. You're a writer. You're an events organiser. Uh, you've been doing radio, like you're a jack of all trades, really. It's incredible. And I keep, I, I find myself saying this to so many guests on the show, you included, you are thriving. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but that's nice of you to say. Yes, I consider myself to be a bit of a crow, you know, just got to be a generalist. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, Transgender Day of Visibility is just getting bigger every year. What are some of the issues that you would like to see highlighted next week on the big day? I guess I'm always interested in seeing um, people that are at the, I guess, intersections of oppression being uh, centred at Trans Day Visibility, and that's why I'm so excited that we have an event that's focusing on trans people of colour and their experiences. Um, You know, as I'm sure, you know, many of your listeners will know, the rates of violence against trans women and um, assigned male at birth non-binary people is far too high and I think it's really important for us to shine a light on ongoing, um, you know, instances of harassment and aggression that that people in those categories experience. But I guess the great thing about Trans Day Visibility is that we don't have to focus all on the negative. We can also, you know, lean into our storytelling, lean into our creative expression and just try and you know, show the world that we're different, um, we're special all in our own ways. So that's what I'm hoping our event will will say to the world anyway. And there's a wonderfully creative, gender-diverse community here in Melbourne and so incredibly exciting that you're a part of it. I mean, sometimes you just pinch yourself when you think about, you know, how the community's organised over the last decade and just how, how it's doing such amazing creative work here in Melbourne. Oh, it's extraordinary. I mean... I'm actually at an event right now at Sunshine Library that we're organising as part of the Writers' Festival and we've got two um, trans and gender non-conforming panellists, um, Nevo Nizam and um, Alison Evans, and the idea that young people are just able to come along to an event that's not even necessarily a, a trans event and just have trans and gender diverse people as the hosts um, is just a wonderful thing. So there's an explosion of you know, creative and organised and interesting people that are doing all sorts of stuff all over Melbourne. So, yeah, it's very different to my childhood, that's for sure. 
of course, you've worked as a lawyer. Uh, the Andrews government here in Victoria has done so many awesome and much-needed law reforms for the LGBTIQ community. What do you think, uh, from your incredible view as a legal person and, and as a creative, what do you think they need to do next? I think that there's still some really important work to be done in the correction space. I think that the Andrews government is saying all the right things in in many areas and and that's to be applauded and um, encouraged. But, yeah, when you get on the pointy, on the wrong side of the justice system, I think that's where things get a lot harder for trans and gender diverse people. The situation for trans women in... um, you know, male prisons is, is still not okay. Um, adequate health, access to healthcare and pronouns and things like that being respected is still not there in in many cases. Um, people being allowed to use chosen names not not the, not the practice in many cases. So, I think the relationship with the trans community and police and the correction system is something that the Andrews government should really prioritise. I think they need more training and more benchmarks and that people that, you know, don't don't um, support our communities and don't respect us, they, they shouldn't have public sector jobs as far as I'm concerned. So you're finding that the criminal justice system, especially when people are incarcerated, is basically erasing trans people's um, gender identity? Well, I mean, you know, the prison system is one of the most gendered spaces that exists. I mean, yeah, take a courtroom um, and then, yeah... Uh, a remand centre or, or a jail cell. I mean, they are, you know, gender segregated still. So that poses a real problem for um, the correction system where they have, you know, very strict gender binaries. So, you know, where do non-binary people fit into that? Um, where do trans women in particular fit into it who do tend to have um, higher levels of incarceration than other parts of the community? And I think that yeah, the, the prison officers and the, and the correction system still does struggle and I think that the policy really does need to catch up with the broader LGBTIQ strategy that the Andrews government has now. On the federal front, of course, uh, the Morrison government has been attacking the trans community. There's the Chandler Bill. There's the Religious Discrimination Bill. Uh, I guess Trans Day Visibility next week is a great opportunity for the community to kind of, you know, show Scott Morrison just how damaging his policies are and just how wrong he is. Yeah, you know, I guess it is. It's sort of like a double-edged sword, to be honest, when all of these events come up because... It is great to have an opportunity to showcase, you know, our community and all of our creativity, but it's really tiring. And, you know, after seeing Anthony Albanese's comments in the media just this week, you know, it's the kind of thing, like, I literally had to delete Twitter off my phone because I was just like, I just can't keep seeing this stuff over and over again. And you know it's going to get worse in the lead-up to the election and knowing that, you know, both... I mean, obviously, we've got Scott Morrison, who's no friend of the trans community, but then having, you know, people like Anthony Albanese kind of dog-whistling um, his transphobia, you know, it's really tiring. And so trying to organise these events in the face of, you know, ongoing discrimination at those highest levels is, is quite draining, to be honest. And I do appreciate the opportunity to, to showcase our community. But, um, yeah, it does come at a, a pretty high personal cost, I have to say. Absolutely. And it's not as if Albanese and Morrison don't know this. It's not as if they don't know that when they dog whistle or when they attack the community, that has a huge impact on people's quality of life and mental health. It's quite unforgivable then that they persist. Yeah. I mean, I guess, 
you know, people would say, well, that's politics and, you know, Labor's trying to win the election at the moment. But, yeah, I mean, who are they leaving behind and, and what kind of government do we actually want? Um, it's certainly not making me very enthusiastic to, you know, do everything I can to get our vote for Labor at the moment, that's for sure. Of course, you do have an anthology coming out in September uh, as part of your wonderful writings. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, incredibly excited about this project. It's called Nothing to Hide, Voices of Trans and Gender Diverse Australia. It's been published by Alan and Unwin, and it's going to be the first um, national publication by a mainstream publisher like Alan and Unwin, um, focusing on the trans and gender diverse community. So we've got um, people like Crystal Love Johnson up from um, Tiwi, who's in the anthology. We've got local writers. Um, who I just mentioned, Tiff Tan and Anastasia Lee, who's from the western suburbs of Melbourne, in it. We've got people from all over of uh, so-called Australia, Smota Castricum, loads of people um, and really prominent and interesting writers uh, featured in this. And, um, yeah, just can't wait for everybody to see it. We've been working on it with my co-editors, um, Alex Gallagher, Bobak, Syed and Eve Reeves, for over two years now. So, yeah, cannot wait for it to see the light of day. And it's so important in the literary space when you've got, you know, J.K. Rowling, seemingly daily, um, you know, uh, flagging off our community. It's great to take a little bit of space in the literary scene to put some positive content about our community out there. I know you're incredibly busy, but what's happening for you on the radio and podcasting front? Anything in the pipeline? Anything happening? Oh, yeah, interesting question, actually. Um, we, we've been doing a summer show. Um, my partner and I, Gemma, have been doing Queer View Mirror on 3 Triple R, but just over summer. So we do that in December and January every year. And that's been really good because we get to, you know, check out a lot of the midsummer events that are coming up that year. So I guess we'll be doing that again in December. But apart from that, I'm just planning on doing a little podcast with my work. Um, working title, Humans of Brimbank, and just focusing on creativity out west um, because that's where I'm living and working these days. So that's what I'm working on. Fantastic. Well, happy Trans Day of Visibility for next week. And I really mean it. You are thriving. It's wonderful to see. Sam Elkin, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. The wonderful Sam Elkin there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. And here's Sarah McLaughlin. Doesn't mean much
McLaughlin there, Sweet Surrender. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Kay Anderson produces the Lost Spaces podcast from London. And uh, we chat this week. Well, uh, Lost Spaces is a podcast that sees me sit down with a different person every week and find out about a venue from their past uh, that they used to go to very frequently at some point in their life, but which no longer exists. And essentially, it's me just asking for lots of gossip about what they got up to there and how having access to that space helped shape who they've become. So it sounds like you've got a fascination with queer history and places. Yes. Yeah, very much. I think taking a step back, the reason that I started this project is because I kept hearing about uh, how awful it was that all these gay venues and queer spaces were closing down and, and how it's terrible and how we're never going to go back. And I kind of thought, well, is it that bad or is it just the way that kind of life progresses and things develop and and scenes change. And so I wanted to take that step back and talk to people and find out why the spaces were important and why they continue to be important. And really within that, I think I wanted to understand what community means when it comes to the queer community. Are you finding that there are common themes as to why the spaces are important, uh, common themes about community that keep popping up? Yeah, I think fundamentally the thing that's most important about these spaces is giving people a space to breathe and giving people a space to feel like they can embody the things about themselves that otherwise they've been told to stifle and to hide and to pretend don't exist. And that's what's been, that that's the common thing. That's the really exciting thing to find out about. Um, and I think that 
get having that opportunity to explore your identity, having that opportunity to try things and to push boundaries and to see what works and what doesn't work is what has made these spaces so important. The question, I suppose, going forward is, is there a need for that anymore? And do people find ways in which to explore their identity outside of physical spaces? I mean, what do you think? I would say there is a need for those spaces and the internet's killing them, or is it about something else? Well, and this is the thing, like, so most of the people that I talk to, you know, don't go to clubs anymore. So I talk to people about, you know, venues from the 80s, the 90s, the noughties, the 10s. Do we call them the 10s? I'm not really sure. But anyway, I speak to people that no longer go clubbing and no longer have a need for it. Who I don't speak to is young people who have never gone to a queer bar, who have never accessed those spaces, but who are still finding ways to explore their identity. So I don't know if I can answer the question because I grew up in a time when that was the thing to do. Like the internet wasn't evolved enough that I could meet people easily and safely through that means and so the only option as far as I saw anyway was that I needed to go to gay bars in order to meet gay people um but that's not that's not the case anymore and so that does throw up that question about whether they are needed and of you know of course if you were to ask me I would be like no of course we need them we definitely need them but that's just me being selfish What do you think about the human impacts of not having these venues, though, and not having this human interaction face-to-face? Like, how does it affect us as human beings in terms of how we communicate with each other? Is it a deficiency of communication? Yeah, and, I mean, that question is much, much wider than just the queer scene because I think it's happening across the board, right? Like, it's much easier to stay home and watch something on Netflix and just swipe left or swipe right and text people and send a few gifts and then be done with it and call it a night. Um, And so, you know, potentially we are heading that way as a society where going out is not uh, as important or as um, prioritized as it has been for previous generations. Um, So I don't know. The thing, the thing that's been most interesting for me, so for, um, for the pandemic, which I don't know if you've heard of it, there's this thing called coronavirus going around. Um, I am an introvert and so was very happy to just stay at home and just, you know, sit out, see what happens. Um, I was lucky enough that, uh, I didn't get sick early on and so I could just, uh, stay home and watch TV and have nice conversations with people over Zoom and stay at home. Um, and I've noticed like, I'm now at the point two years in where I am like, oh, do you know what? I would really enjoy some human company. So I am um, valuing that more and prioritizing that and being very intentional about it. But if the pandemic hadn't happened, I don't know if I would have even thought about it or if I would have just kind of gone gradually stopped seeing people because I'm getting older and I'm getting set in my ways. (laughs) 
It must be a wonderful gift, though, talking to these people around the world about their experiences at these amazing venues. Tell us about some of the venues that really jump out to you in your in your travels, you know, recording. Oh, wow. Putting me on the spot. Um, so I've done about 150 conversations. I've talked about lots and lots of different, like, mega clubs, tiny, pokey little bars that no one went to, and everything in between. And I think, for me, the thing that's most interesting are those small bars that no one remembers. There's, like bars that existed in the 80s or the 90s before the internet existed don't have a presence on the internet like there's just nothing about them and so someone will say to me oh i want to talk about bar y that was in this city and i'll google it and there'll just be nothing and so it's really affirming that the project is giving uh these venues a little bit of kudos and saying like, yes, they mattered. They were there. They're really important. Um, but also I just, you know, I'm really interested in those stories of just like misadventures that people got up to. And, you know, there's nothing particularly, rem- uh, there are sometimes when stories are very remarkable and incredible things happen on the night out but the the bulk of the stories are just about very ordinary nights out clubbing and partying and meeting strangers and feeling insecure and feeling on top of the world and those are the stories that i love because they resonate with me yeah, so your podcast is like a vessel for lost queer histories. Uh, what what an amazing role to be a caretaker, the caretaker of those stories. Oh, no, you're going to make me nervous now. That That's too much responsibility. <laughs> but you've also morphed into talking to people uh, about themselves as well and and about their kind of, you know, perspectives on on current issues as well within the community. So the podcast is evolving. It's not just about lost spaces, it seems. Yeah, and I think it never really was about lost spaces. It was about the people that were in those lost spaces. Um, And, yeah, I mean, one of the amazing things about it, sorry, I'm just saying that everything about it is amazing, um, is that I've been able to learn how to talk to strangers because as I said before I'm an introvert I'm not someone who's like naturally gregarious and like excitable and so uh having that opportunity to talk to a new person every week and be like hey for the next hour and a half we have to be best friends and you have to just tell me all these really personal things about yourself um has been terrifying at some times but has actually been been really great and I've been so lucky that people have opened up to me and told me these stories and told me about, you know, struggles that they had with their self-identity, struggles that they had with their families, um, in these incredible journeys through self. And they've been kind enough to reflect on things that they're struggling with, you know, currently, things that they're thinking about, mulling over, and uh, yeah, to go back to that point I, I had earlier, reflecting on why and how they belong to the queer community. Because I think, you know, we talk about the queer community as though it's this one thing, but 
it can be really hard to feel as though you fit into it. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us some of the um, stories that have jumped out to you the most. Is there anything, any one story, say, that you can share? Well, keeping it on a Melbourne tip. Um, so I actually lived in Melbourne for a, a few years, a very long time ago. Um, but it's meant that I've been very interested in the stories that people have about Melbourne venues and things going on. I think, um, oh, I'll tell you. Okay, so this is maybe not actually that scandalous if you know anything about her, but Katie Underwood came on the show to tell me all about the market. And and I used to go to the market, but I never realized that there was a disabled toilet where people had sex. Yeah, I remember I remember the toilets there uh, only had like, you know, trickles of hot water if you turned them <laughs> on. You couldn't get cold water from the tap. So I remember that. <laughs> oh no, I don't remember that. Was it like scalding hot after? Yeah, 10 it seconds? was pretty warm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you had to buy a bottle of water if you needed a drink. <laughs> What's well, an amazing podcast? You are like the oracle of queer history in spaces and people's stories. Uh, and I think probably people people feel comfortable with you because you are an introvert that isn't judgmental. It's a wonderful podcast. Kay Anderson, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thank you. And, yep, that was Kay Anderson from London chatting about the Lost Spaces podcast.
Trans vision fanfare. I'm out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.